So we are going through a brief series, um, five weeks, called Gospel Culture. And I think um, one of the best ways to summarize what that means, if you haven't been with us um, in the last couple weeks, is a quote from this book that I've quoted from, I think, each week. It's called The Gospel, How the Church Portrays the Beauty of Christ by Ray Ortland. Um, so in a nutshell, this gospel culture is unpacked wisely here with this quote. Gospel doctrine creates a gospel culture. The doctrine of grace creates a culture of grace. When the doctrine is clear and the culture is beautiful, that church will be powerful. But there are no shortcuts to getting there. Without the doctrine, the culture will be weak. Without the culture, the doctrine will seem pointless. So this series, just so that we're upfront with this, is both actual and aspirational, okay? So this is who we are, where it's present, praise God, because he's accomplished that, and it's actual in some ways, but we're far from what we should be, and it's aspirational. What kind of church do we want to be? Where are we headed? What, what are we looking to become? And so it's aspirational as well, and in the present, what that means is we've got to cultivate it. There's work to do. We want these truths to soak down into the core of who we are, into our hearts and our minds, and then it gets worked out in our words and our attitudes and our relationships and the way that we care for one another. Um, and it gets, in a sense, kind of pumped into the atmosphere of the place. So um, Jesus, in Luke 6, um, if we're following this, like, inside to outside kind of direction, Jesus in Luke 6 says, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks." Well, that's a good segue into the book of James and the section right before the section we're going to look at. So if you're not there yet, turn to the book of James um, in the New Testament toward the back. If you um, don't have a Bible with you, you can find one in the pew in front of you and you can find our passage on page 1012, 1012. And James 3, 9 to 12, is the section immediately before our section. It's talking about the tongue, our speech. And James writes, With our tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth both from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Of course not. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? No. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So if you're both blessing and cursing out of the same mouth, there's dividedness in the heart. And God intends to make us whole, integrated people where his grace and truth shapes all of who we are so that there's integrity between what's in our heart, what we say, our attitudes, all of that. 
So the main point here is it's unnatural. Like who's ever heard of fig trees off of a bramble bush or salt water from a fresh spring? It ought not to be so. So biblical oughts are not always about obligation. They can also be about what is according to nature, what's natural. So the point is not just, you know, don't do that, though that's true. Um, We shouldn't use our tongues to curse people made in God's image. Um, The bigger point is it's against our nature. Apple tree seeds ought to grow into apple trees. Birds ought to fly. You see, it's according to nature. Fish ought to swim. So it's not restrictive or oppressive to, to a fish to say you ought to swim. Now, for people who have been made new by the power of the gospel... In fact, in James 1, he talks about how we were brought forth by the word of truth, like generated from this powerful word that creates something new, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his new creation. So if we're new creations in Christ, the old has passed, the new has come. If the word of God, the, the gospel is planted in us, new creation seed, then what should that produce in our speech? There should be fruit in your speech that accords with the nature of the seed, right? So that is the immediate context of our passage, and it's good preparation for what we're going to find there. So let's read now our passage for this morning, James 3, 13 to 18, and we'll walk through it. So James 3, 13 to 18. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So you can see that organic metaphor, you know, figs from a bramble bush, no, is continued here A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. All right, so let's walk down through this passage. Um, First point, wisdom is shown by her actions. Look at verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct? Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So churches, talking about gospel culture here, right? Churches ought to be places of wisdom. I mean, we worship the perfectly wise God, right? He's omniscient. He knows all things. He's the source of all wisdom. Colossians 2.3 says that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Or the passage that Chris read from Philippians 2. We are to have the mind of Christ among us. So we deal in God's truth. 
I mean, God's given us insight into life's biggest questions and answers for those questions so that we know and we think and we believe like those things that we know and think and believe incredibly important to the life and work of the church, like why we're here, where we came from, what went wrong, how it's made right, where we're headed, all of those things. God's revealed those things to us, and it shapes us and makes us wise. But individual Christians and the culture of a church can focus on doctrinal knowledge and doctrinal correctness and equate that with wisdom. Have you ever encountered a church that's got a really strong emphasis on doctrine, but the church was stiff and cold and not particularly, you know, a loving place? Is that wisdom? So the doctrine may be correct, but there's something not right with the community dynamics and the culture of the place. It's not, like, in accord with the nature of the truth. I mean, even as Chris mentioned Jesus washing his disciples' feet. If that is the nature of God's love for us, do you see how it has implications for how we relate to one another? So we don't want that to be the case, right? We don't want to have our doctrine right, but have our relational dynamics be dissonant to that truth. Another Ray Ortland quote, it's the last one this morning, I promise, um, this morning. Um, so Ray Orland writes of the importance of both our doctrinal creed and our relational conduct when he says this. We accept that the truth of biblical doctrine is essential to authentic Christianity. But do we accept that the beauty of human relationships is equally essential? Every one of us is wired to lean one way or the other toward emphasizing doctrine or culture. Some of us naturally resonate with truth and standards and definitions. Others of us resonate with feel and vibe and relationships. Whole churches, too, can emphasize one or the other. Left to ourselves, we will get it partly wrong. But we won't feel wrong because we'll be partly right. But only partly. Truth without grace is harsh and ugly. Grace without truth is sentimental and cowardly. The living Christ is full of grace and truth. We cannot represent him, therefore, without, within the limits of our own personalities and backgrounds. Yet as we depend on him moment by moment, both personally and corporately, he will give us wisdom. He will make us wise. He will stretch us and make our churches more like himself so that we can glorify him more clearly than we ever have done before. So this makes sense given the fact that biblical wisdom is actually more than merely an intellectual category. You probably know that already if you've heard a sermon on the Proverbs or whatever. It's not just information in the head. So James actually holds up the mirror of the word to show us who we really are, to show us if we're really wise. Because wisdom is more a moral category than merely an intellectual one. Okay? We need to look intently into the mirror, see, okay, what do I really look like? And not walk away and forget what we look like. So are you wise? Am I wise? 
Are we wise? Do we have real wisdom? Who is wise and understanding? Do you see that's the question asked in verse 13? And how do you know? How does it show? Do you know it by your words? By how eloquent and impressive your speech is? Do you know it if you can answer all the questions on the systematic theology exam? Do you know it based on how many or you know, what books you've read lately? Do you know it if you can name all the authors and the well-known Christian leaders who have some aspect of their theology that's suspect and you can just like, you're so discerning that you can just pick out error everywhere. Who is wise and understanding among you? And I'm not saying that any of those things is necessarily bad. Systematic theology is good for us. <laughs> we should read books. That's helpful, especially the Bible. Um, and we should be discerning, right? But who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct. Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So if you're familiar with the book of James, this is very similar to what he did in chapter 2. James said, do you want to be shown, you foolish person? We're talking about folly and wisdom, right? That faith apart from works is useless. So you can, you can say, I have faith, but if you have no works to demonstrate the reality of that faith, it calls that faith into question. So you can say that you're wise, but if you don't have conduct where you display that wisdom, then it's suspect. So Doug Moo says it this way um, in his commentary, like true faith, true wisdom is identified by the quality of life that it produces. So just like genuine faith, godly wisdom is shown. It's demonstrated by our works. Not just any kind of works, works done in the meekness of wisdom, but works nonetheless. So it's a moral category here. The second sentence there in verse 13 can be a little confusing the way that James worded it. It almost sounds redundant. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Um, but that word for conduct is, is kind of a broad term that's um, talking about a way of life, like lifestyle. So the idea is that wisdom is shown by your way of life built on and shown by visible works done in the meekness of wisdom. Okay, NIV translates it like this, which I think gets at it well. Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. Okay, so wisdom is not a matter merely of eloquent speech, command of subject matter, extensive knowledge, etc. No, in the context of James, just like genuine faith works, is demonstrated by works, loving works. So also true wisdom works. So again, this is a theme in James. Back in chapter 1, we are to receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save our souls and be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. And then he goes on with that mere metaphor. So wisdom begins with an accurate assessment of who we are. Remember the mere metaphor. And you know what? Listen, apart from the grace of God, we're all sinful, foolish, and weak in need of mercy and grace and wisdom. 
And in the gospel, we find exactly that, mercy, grace, and wisdom. We've got nothing to boast about, certainly not before God. We need mercy. We need help. We don't deserve praise or commendation apart from his mercy. We are in bad shape. Romans 1 says, although they knew God, this is kind of like spiritual biography for all of us apart from the grace of God in Christ. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for idols. When, when you turn away from God and center your life around some other substitute God, you can't help but become foolish because that is the, like, the most foolish move you can make. And that's the move we've all made. Like, turning away from glory to find our satisfaction or whatever else in idols is folly. And we've all done it. That's by nature. We're kind of spring-loaded to that. It's the heart of all sin. In a sense, what you're doing is we've all repented of God and we're trusting in idols for life, satisfaction, refuge, comfort, strength, protection, identity, security, purpose, Life, like where is your life? So what we deserve is the wrath of God for this unrighteousness. So salvation begins, like when we receive this word of the gospel implanted in us, it begins with a humble acknowledgement and acceptance of that bad news. Like we stop trying to justify ourselves. We stop shifting the blame. We stop thinking that we're probably good enough to get into heaven. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We meekly receive the judgment of God that we're guilty sinners deserving of judgment and condemnation, but we also meekly receive and happily receive the fact that there is a merciful Savior who paid for our sins, and we can be at peace with God because of him. So the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, it is the wisdom of God, And Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So we don't have anything to boast of except the Lord, the cross. Like, I am so thankful for Jesus because I would be absolutely, you know, toast and hopeless without him. him. So all of this changes how we live. It changes our way of life. Our conduct changes, which is why Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So James didn't just make up this agricultural metaphor in chapter 3. He got it from Jesus. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So again... If we're going to live out this gospel culture, we've got to look in the mirror and be honest with ourselves. Am I wise? How do I know? It's not just read all the books, listen to all the podcasts. I've taken all the classes. No, here is an acid test of true wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. This is what the gospel produces We're not saved by our works, but when the gospel seed falls into our hearts, 
and begins to take root and grow, inevitably it bears fruit. We're set free from self-promotion and selfish ambition and jealousy and on and on. And in their place, humility, security. And this love of God and God has served us. Like Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That so secures our souls. We've got nothing left to prove. We don't have to be defensive and self-protective anymore. We know who we are. And we're filled up with God's grace and his love. And we can serve others humbly. We can be oriented to their best interest. So true wisdom is not proud. It's meek. I mean, I mean, if I got what I deserved, I'm toast. I, I am so thankful for what God has done. All the pride gets, you know, just pushed out, put to death, and the seed of the gospel produces this kind of humility that is Christ-like and um, others-oriented in love. The alternative to this is the bitter fruit of what the world calls wisdom. So look at point number two, verses 14 to 16, worldly wisdom's bitter fruit. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition or rivalries, another way you could translate that, in your hearts, it's like the opposite of the meekness of wisdom, do not boast and be false to the truth. Like if, if there's really those toxic weeds in your soul, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, don't boast of your great wisdom or your great faith. You're a hypocrite, false to the truth. That's not the wisdom that comes down from above. That's wisdom that's earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So wisdom is shown by her actions, but it starts in the heart. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts. So if there is selfishness, jealousy in our hearts, it doesn't matter if we can teach an entire systematic theology class. Selfish ambition, jealousy don't come from above, but from below, worldly and ultimately demonic. So I hope you can see... You know, I know we're jumping right into the middle of James, the book of James. Um, but if you have any familiarity with what comes before and what comes after, this section is not just kind of dropped randomly at the end of chapter 3. There's wise intentionality here. Chapter 3, the first half, is about the tongue and how it is so hard to tame, right? It's a fire, and it's set on fire by hell. We bless God and we curse those made in his image. And then in chapter 4, it starts off like this. This is right after our section. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So you can see the parallels with bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. Again, this is the opposite of the meekness of wisdom. So wisdom is a moral category, not merely an intellectual one. And if you claim to be wise, and we want to be a wise community here, gospel culture, 
if we claim that and yet our attitudes and our hearts are selfish and sour, then we're being false to the truth. We need to repent and ask for grace for this fruit to be seeded by the gospel. So just like there was demonic faith, remember in chapter 2, you believe that there is one God? Good. So do the demons. And they shudder. So also here, the reality of our wisdom is tested by the fruit in our life. There's demonic wisdom here in verse 15. So we need to test ourselves. Look in the mirror. Satan loves to disguise himself as an angel of life with just light, with just enough truth to make his lies believable. So he loves to coat his encouragements to jealousy and selfish ambition with just enough light to make it look like wisdom. All right, so that's point number two. That's the worldly counterfeit version of wisdom. What does the real thing look like? What's the real thing smell like? Point number three, verses 17 to 18, heavenly wisdom. Verse 17, but the wisdom from above, which if you know the book of James, sorry, again, we're jumping right in here, but that phrase was used back in chapter one. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, because it comes down from above. And in verse 17, every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. So wisdom is not merely the result of years and experience. Nothing wrong with years and experience. That can be a wonderful school, right? But it's not just automatic. It comes from above. It's not merely the result of education and the life of the mind, though those can be helpful as well. Wisdom is ultimately a gift. It's a gift that comes down from above, which means if we want to be the kind of community, the kind of Christians individually, and the kind of community corporately that God intends us to be, we are going to need to be a prayerful, humble, dependent people. The wisdom from above is first pure. So he's going to give a list of character traits of wisdom from above. Okay, so this is going to show us what real wisdom looks like. And so this is both an opportunity to look in the mirror and say, Lord, help me to see myself, where I need to change, how you want to change me, and how you want to use me to cultivate this in our church. Okay, so let's just walk through these characteristics here. The wisdom from above is first pure. This is like the primary characteristic, first pure. The, the word pure in the book of James, certainly there's moral purity connotations here, but it also speaks to being wholehearted, like wholehearted fidelity to God. So in chapter 4, next chapter, James is going to exhort the double-minded to purify their hearts. In other words, don't be divided, the world and God, one foot in the world, one foot with God. Purify your hearts. Don't be two-timing. God takes the first place. He is our, like, have no other gods before me. So the problem is that they were divided. It's easy for us to be divided. We can be like spiritual two-timers, right? And so we need to repent of that infidelity and trust in Jesus wholeheartedly. So James 
continues on. Who is wise and understanding among us? Well, look in the mirror, see what we see. First pure. Lord, make me integrated. Make me whole. I don't want to be like giving you 37% or 76% and then, you know, belonging to the world with the rest. I want to be wholly yours. I want you to have the first place. Your kingdom come in my life. Every nook and cranny. I'm not going to keep this closet over here from you. First pure, then peaceable. So are we peaceable? Like, we're not going to be peaceable if we're not at peace. Are you constantly on edge, irritable, prickly? Do you pick verbal fights? Do you tend to throw gas on the relational, conversational fire rather than water? Like in your marriage? Or with your kids? Or with your siblings? Or at work? And if so, why is that? Are you angry? Are you jealous? Are you selfishly ambitious? Because it's not going your way? And so we attack. So we can actually receive the word of the gospel right now. Like, it's not going my way. Well, wait a second. Hold on. What if things actually went the way that you deserve. Not the way that you think you deserve in your pride, but like in your sin. What if that just totally shifted things like 180 degrees? Forgiveness? Peace with God? Like me, a hostile enemy? Me putting God on trial, calling his wisdom and goodness into question? Like, how often have we done that? When we suffer, we're like, God, what are you doing? Like, what are you thinking? Me? Peace with God? Like, I've turned away from God so many times and just like, you know, it's like Jeremiah 2. Turn away from me, the fountain of living water, to hew for yourselves broken cisterns, cisterns that can hold no water. Just turn away from the fountain and try to lick the rusty water from the bottom of a broken cistern. And then what does he want to do? He wants to give you grace and forgiveness and restoration and peace. Like receive that word meekly, (laughs) that gospel word, and it will fill you with calm and peace in your soul. And then you will become peaceable. Next one, gentle. Are you gentle? Am I gentle? Are we gentle? Are we kind? Is that what Christians are known for in Wilmington? Gentleness? Or are we harsh? Do your words bite and pick? Do you lord it over people? Do you put people on edge? See ourselves in the mirror. The point is not to just rub our faces in it. It's to be honest with what we see so we can repent. And then we look to our Savior. Aren't you glad he doesn't treat us that way? (laughs) He's gentle with us. Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Open to reason. Um, Doug Moo 
says this word literally means easily persuaded, which we're like, oh, wait, I don't want to be gullible. What is meant is not a weak, credulous gullibility, but a willing deference to others when unalterable theological or moral principles are not involved. Everybody still awake? Those are big words. Strung together. Here's the point. Gracious flexibility. You know, not everything is a first-level order issue. So on stuff that doesn't matter as much, like you can, make the, you can kind of distinguish between a mountain and a molehill, and you don't make mountain out of the molehills. It's like Romans 14 and 15. Welcome one another, and not to dispute over opinions. Of course there's going to be stuff we're going to disagree about. But we want to have a gospel culture that keeps the main thing the main thing. And yeah, we can talk about the secondary and the tertiary things, but we're going to like make sure we don't freak out over those when we disagree. And we're going to continue to welcome one another as God in Christ has welcomed us. Gracious flexibility, open to reason. Next one, full of mercy and good fruits. So this is coming off that whole thing with the tongue, not full of the poison of 3.8, full of mercy, full of good, loving works, good fruits that are produced by the seed of the gospel. Mercy from God. And just Jesus laid down his life, you know, the seed went into the ground and died so that much fruit could be born. So, Next one, impartial and sincere. Um, impartial, you can look back at James chapter 2, where he says, no favoritism in the church, right? So, again, gospel culture, which is a result of gospel doctrine. God is not impartial. He doesn't just, like, pick the impressive ones, you know, like kickball in middle school. Um, he's just going to kick, you're going to pick the ones that... Uh, can kick it a long way? No. Impartial and sincere. So our impartiality is a fruit of the seed of God's gracious impartiality toward us. And then sincere. He started out with pure, not double-minded, and he ends with sincere, not playing. We're not pretending here. We're not faking. We're not two-faced, living a double life, faking it in any spheres of life sincere. Like, if you have a church where everybody's got a facade on, like, what kind of culture does that create? Anybody want to go to that church? No? Okay, but we're all probably a little prone to it, right? So we need to say, we're not going to fake it. Okay? We're going to be sincere. Lord, make me sincere from the inside out. Integrated, living authentic faith. That's what maturity, that's what wisdom looks like. Don't you want that? Don't you want to go to a church like that? Well, we all have a part to play in cultivating that atmosphere here. I mean, we know how ugly and empty, you know, like jealousy, selfish ambition are and how they make us ugly. Well, God wants to make us radiant by his grace, characterized by these characteristics in verse 17 here wants to cultivate an environment where this kind of maturity and wisdom is in the air. It's in our relationships. 
like, oh God, do whatever it takes that we would be known, we would be characterized by this kind of wisdom. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So maybe we need to do some taste testing. Look, I need to do some taste testing in my own life, my own attitudes, my words, and you, and us. What do we find? Where we find 14 to 16, this uh, bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, let's repent. Where we find 317, pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason. If you, if you taste that when you're interacting with somebody else, you can encourage them. Oh, so good to meet with you for coffee the other day. It's like I experienced James 317. It's God's grace in your life. Thank you. Really encouraged. So I think here's the kind of closing application here. We all need to get busy with some wise gospel farming, okay? Individually and corporately. If we sow to the flesh, we're going to reap bitter fruit. If we sow to the Spirit, we will reap the sweet fruit of the Spirit. And actually, Galatians 5 is next week, so we'll consider that some more. So last point, point number four, sowing and reaping. We live in a contentious age. Do I have to twist anybody's arm to convince you of that? We need to be sure that we are not being conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of our minds and our hearts and our attitudes and our actions. And we are all sowing and reaping all the time. We reap what we sow. James already told us that angry Christian farmers don't produce the right thing. James chapter 1. Know this, my beloved brothers and sisters, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Angry farmers reap what they sow. And we need to repent of our unrighteous anger. The church, our church, needs meek, gentle, Christ-like farmers. <laughs> and meek farmers will reap what they sow. Verse 18, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So righteousness, like the way the world ought to be in God's wisdom and design, grows and thrives in the greenhouse of peace. So those who cultivate such an ecological environment in the church are blessed by King Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Like, you start making peace, being active in this farming work, people look at you and go, oh, you must be you must be God's son because you're a peacemaker because he's the peacemaker, right? So what are we reaping? We should look to the fruit, taste the fruit, do some taste testing, and then we trace it back to what we're sowing and the heart underneath our actions and our attitudes and our words. When we make peace, we sow future righteousness. When we break peace or fake peace, we sow future conflict. 
and even future hypocrisy. Everybody tracking with me on that? Do I need to say that again? When we make peace, we're actually sowing future righteousness. Has a wonderfully, like, happy self-perpetuating effect. But when we fake peace or break peace, then we're actually sowing for future conflict and hypocrisy. So I'm just going to close with a look at this slide. Um, This is like, sorry, homemade, low budget. Okay, like, get over it. Um, All right, maybe that wasn't so meek. Um, So this is just really helpful. We'll go over it super fast, but you can see, like, it's... This is called the slippery slope. Um, so you can see those two little arrows. Is this even working? Is this working? No. It's not, it was working. Oh, I'm pushing the wrong button. That's probably why it's not working. There we go. Okay, so you see this arrow? And you see that arrow? Imagine some, like, grease right there and there. It's really easy to slip off the edge. Slippery slope. So don't we want to be a people who make peace, real peace? We need to do log and spec. We need to repent. We need to forgive. We need to actually talk about stuff. We sometimes need to confront and hold accountable. But ooh, when you start to confront and hold accountable, careful, you might become the sin police and start attacking and judging and condemning and slandering and bullying and abusing. That's peace breaking. The focus is not on the good of the other. It's finger pointing and there's no peace there because you are fighting rather than seeking reconciliation. Everybody with me? And then there's a slippery spot right here. See, some people like to fight, some people like to run. But this is also focused on me. Comfort, I'm avoiding conflict. So should we overlook? Absolutely. It's a glory to overlook an offense. We should forbear. We should be patient. We should be kind. But be careful you don't deny and avoid and blame shift and appease and enable, that is false and cheap peace. That's peace faking. So this is like, there's a book called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. He's a Christian lawyer. Um, And then there's like a version for kids, which that diagram is even cooler. Um, So it's kind of like a combination of those with a few edits. Um, So anyway, why do we even share that? So that you can see it is hard work to stay on top for real peacemaking, isn't it? It's really easy to slip down one side or the other. So this kind of farming work that we're called to do, we're going to need some grace. We're going to need some divine help. But at least we know what we're after here and maybe what some of the dangers are. So wise, peaceful, like righteous atmosphere in the church. It's a heart issue. We need to be honest with what we see in the mirror, what we need to repent of, and also the grace that we need to, like, soak our souls in so that good fruit is born, doesn't spring up on its own. The only thing that springs up on its own is weeds, right? (laughs) Don't have to do anything for those to come up. Conflict will come up naturally among us like so many weeds, so we got to do the faithful, regular, proactive farming, gardening work in order for our church to be a gospel greenhouse for healthy growth and harvest. we got to plow. I mean, you could spend some time in your community groups thinking about this. What's it look like to plow, like making our hearts and our relationships ready to receive 
the grace of God, the seed of the word, so that it changes us and doesn't just like glance off of us like a bullet off a rock. We've got to remove stones. I mean, there's stuff that gets in the way of growth, right? There's preventative work. We've got to sow. Like, this is powerful seed. So we've got to sow the word of God into our hearts personally, corporately. Discipleship, investment. We've got to water. We've got to tend to the seeds that are sown. Follow up, ongoing care. We've got to weed and prune protecting from things that can choke out growth. So there's preventative work. There's also responsive work, right? So we dare not be hearers only who deceive ourselves. That's like a farmer who reads farm journals. Well, a farmer that reads farm journals talks about the best methods, you know, um, problem with other people's methods, but doesn't actually do any cultivation. Like, what good is that? Well, I follow a lot of farmers on Instagram, I mean, I've saved a bunch of videos how to do this and that and the other thing. I know all about aquaponics and hydroponics and, you know, which plants grow well together and vertical farming and, wow, can I come see your garden? Uh, Oh, I don't actually have one. (laughs) So let's not be people who merely talk about or boast of wisdom or of making peace. Let's meekly receive the life-giving words of the gospel and in the meekness of wisdom, let's show our faith and our wisdom in works of love and mercy and peace. And let's pray, let's pray, let's pray for a real faith, real wisdom culture that will bear the sweet fruit of the gospel. Amen? Okay, so um, we're gonna transition into the table here. And so let's prepare our hearts. So I think if you were awake, You're probably convicted. I'm convicted. We all fall short here, okay? So isn't it great, so fitting that we follow with the table because all of our failures, all of our, like, you know, worldliness and all the stuff that we saw in the mirror that's dirty and ugly, well, let's just leave it at the foot of the cross. Jesus paid for that. There is forgiveness, full and free. So we can receive grace and mercy in a fresh way. He wants us to be honest with ourselves, see ourselves in the mirror, and deal with it. And then he died to pour out more grace. He gives more grace, more grace, more grace. So we feed on Christ. We're strengthened by Christ because we want personally and corporately for our lives to adorn the gospel, our church to adorn the gospel, not undermine the gospel. So I think it's fitting the men can come forward who are going to be serving communion. It's fitting that we close with the prayer from James 1, if any of you lacks wisdom. Anybody not need this? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who because of Jesus gives generously to everyone who comes without reproach and it will be given to you.